So about a month ago now, is this uh, not on anymore? How, how are we doing? There we go, okay. About a month ago now, our family had the opportunity to go to the beautiful island of Kauai. And um, there's this beach right across the street from the place we were staying at, and that's where we would do most of our snorkeling. And usually at this time of year, you're, you see a monk seal or two come up and, and line the beach. Uh, we had been there eh, five or six days, and we still hadn't seen a monk seal. Uh, I was laying on a, on a blanket reading my book, and then I saw the telltale sign. Like inside the surf line is the, the head bobbing there in the surf. And you know how it is. You've seen maybe harbor seals out here. Uh, and so I got so really excited. I called Corey. We, we got the kids, and we were looking at this thing. We are like, this is awesome. It's headed right for shore. We're going to see it come come beach itself, right, and to see this thing. Well, everybody, you know, around us, like all these complete strangers, they see us intently looking. You know how when somebody sees something cool, like an owl or a a bird, everyone's eyes gaze, and so now everybody is like, oh, there's a monk seal. Okay, because I started a trend, I guess, right? But then I started to notice, like a few minutes go by, I'm like, something's like a little odd about this monk seal. Like, three things, actually. One thing was that it wasn't really going underwater. Like, a lot of times a seal will pop its head up and look around and then, like, go underwater, and then pop up 20 feet away or something like that, right? and it, it, it kind of does this. Well, this, this monk seal was just kind of hanging out on top, so I was like, all right, that's kind of weird. Um, the second thing is, is it was moving kind of slowly. Like, I don't know, they're usually really graceful swimmers, and it's just kind of like not moving. It's moving toward the beach, but not really fast, but I'm like, maybe it's tired or sick or something. Then the third weird thing is like, you know, marine mammals and stuff, you're, you're supposed to stay away from them. Well, there's these snorkelers, like, right in the water next to the monk seal. And I was thinking, like, what, what boneheads? Like, what are you guys doing right by this thing? So anyway, we're watching, we're watching, and Corey and a group of people decide to walk down the street to get a better, be- better vantage point of the part of the beach that looked like the seal was going to come up on. That way, they're far enough away but can see down on the beach and, and look at it. As it gets closer to where Corey and this group of people are, I start to have this sick feeling in my stomach that something is really wrong with this situation and I realized that it wasn't a monk seal at all, that it was a coconut <laughs> just, just floating on the water. And so I, I very coolly got back in my book and just started reading and like just played the whole thing off. And then sure enough, like I peeked and it, when it, it hit the surface, it just kind of rolled like this head just rolled onto the, so crazy. Anyway, why was it that, that I like, the person who grew up around the water and have seen, my dad's a biologist, like, why did I think a coconut was, was a monk seal? And I was thinking about it. I was thinking it's because my expectations, I normally see monk seals there. That's kind of what they do. Their heads pop up. Like, I just had it in my mind that that's obviously what this thing was. It was a monk seal. And my preconceived idea of what I expected to see trumped the reality of what was in front of me. This sort of thing happens all the time to people. That's why magicians have jobs, because there's sleight of hand and all that kind of stuff. But I bring it up specifically in Advent because it is very easy for us to lose sight of what Christmas is all about. Retailers, of course, want to make us think it's about buying things. Advertisers want to play with our desires for nostalgia and comfort and festivity. Movies and music make, it, make you think like everything Christmas is about romance, romance and relationships or breakups and relationships. It's all about love and all of this stuff. And, and even in church, we talk about faith, hope, and love. When we talk about all the trappings of Advent and Christmas, we have all the stuff. We sing 
Sometimes we lose sight of what it's really about. We're right to follow the impulse to celebrate, but sometimes we forget, we forget the core of Christmas. And this year I want to bring some fresh perspective on the familiarity of Christmas. And today is a reminder that Christmas is about God becoming human to save us. To save us. After all, Jesus' name is, Yeshua in Hebrew literally means Yahweh saves. God saves. That's what Jesus' name means. Christmas is about Jesus and particularly that Jesus came to save. So what does that actually mean? Like we see Jesus saves on billboards sometimes and signs, but what does it actually mean that Jesus saves? What is salvation according to scripture salvation has lots of aspects actually in scripture but the four main pieces of salvation are these number one salvation from oppression this would include salvation from injustice unfairness wickedness wicked rulers evil wicked and abusive people like oppression it's It's deliverance from that. It's salvation from that. And the clearest example would be the Exodus where God rescues the Hebrew people from Egyptian slavery. And he brings salvation working through humans like the Hebrew midwives and Moses' mother and Moses' sister and Pharaoh's daughter, all who protected another human being, Moses, from the evil king who was trying to murder him. God empowers Moses and he leads the people out of bondage into the hope of the promised land where they would be free to worship God openly. Today there are still people in literal slavery. There are groups of people oppressed by corrupt leaders and corrupt systems of power and prejudice. And the salvation we hope for in Jesus will free people from oppression and bring judgment to the unrepentant oppressor. That's part of what Christmas is all about. Number two, salvation from sins. Salvation from sin. Sin is a, it's sort of a loaded term, isn't it? It, it seems outdated to lots of people. Uh, some might prefer to talk about sin in terms of our mistakes or bad choices. I think that's a little soft language because bad choices and mistakes are not always sins. And the bigger problem with defining our sins by our own standard of what a bad choice is or what a mistake is, according to me, is that it's very subjective, isn't it? We become the judges of what a mistake means or what a bad choice is. At its core, our sins are the actions or inactions of rebellion against God. That's what sins are. Uh, They're choices we make or fail to make that result in harm to people made in God's image and harm to the creation that we're called to steward and to, to caretake for. Sins are sins because they break relationship with God. And God saw this need to be delivered from our sins, and he became one of us to do something about it. That's part of what Christmas is all about. Salvation from oppression, salvation from sins. Number three, 
Salvation from sin with a capital S. Sins are individual acts of rebellion against God, but sin is bigger. It's the cultural air that we breathe. It's the current that we get swept up in without realizing it. It is just the spirit of the age. Uh, Sin is our bent, our propensity to commit sins. Sin is the reason that we have systems that support oppression and that we have systems that encourage sinning. Sin is a spiritual force, a social inheritance, a human psychosocial condition that we don't often see because it's so much part of our world and our perspective that it just seems natural and normal like an impulse. So salvation includes salvation from oppression, salvation from sins, salvation from sin, and number four, salvation from death. Humans are biological creatures. We are born, we eventually die, and what Jesus offers us is the hope of eternal life, new life in new bodies, in a new creation, in which we are able to live out our our vocation of being in communion with God and rightly related to other people. Another way of saying salvation from death is that we are being saved for abundant, flourishing life. That's part of what Christmas is about. So all the lights and the feasting and the decorations and the songs, all of the Christmas extravagance, it all makes sense when you consider that we are celebrating God bringing salvation. But when you talk to people, real people, and consider maybe your own salvation, we usually have problems accepting the salvation of Jesus. We either think that Jesus came for us and our kind and our way of doing life, but not necessarily for other people. Or we think that Jesus might have come to save people, but probably not me. Not with the things that I've done, not with my particular lack of faith, not with the things that I often think about. And most of us, I think if we're honest, struggle with a bit of both. Being a little bit judgy on certain groups of people and being a little bit insecure about how God's salvation really reaches us. And this evening, we're gonna look at a passage of scripture that might be familiar to most of you, but we're gonna explore it through the lens of salvation. After all, I think that Matthew added it to his gospel to help answer the question, who did Jesus come to save? I want to invite you to stand as I read this passage. It's Matthew 2, 1 through 12. And it goes like this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, 
are by no means among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So in this story, we're introduced to two main groups of people. The first group contains Herod, who is the king of the Jews, and his group of advisors and Bible experts. The second group are known as magi, men who read the movement of the stars, like an early version of astronomers, and men who interpret the stars, the movement of the stars, kind of like an astrologer. That's what a magi was, a diviner, someone who, who paid attention to the stars, but not just scientifically, they interpreted them like an astrologer as well. And so when Jesus is born in Israel, the Jewish people were living under political and social oppression by the Roman Empire. Roman soldiers are stationed all throughout Palestine in little garrisons, and they were enforcing their rules and their laws and taxing people, and it felt oppressive you knew that foreigners were invaded, had invaded your land and were calling the shots, right? Now, Herod, the king, was not a good man, not even close, not even a nice man, but he was at least a representative of Israel before the Romans. He was building this massive temple project that was one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. And this temple, for all of Herod's atrocities, at least it was a physical symbol to the Jewish people of resistance against Rome. The Magi were pagans who practiced idolatry and divination, both of which were forbidden according to the law in Scripture. To make matters worse, these Magi are most likely from Arabia, the area that was once Babylon, where Israel had been in captivity. The Magi represented the wrong religion. They hailed from the wrong nation. They represent oppression. Now, if you were to ask a first century Jewish person to choose between Herod and his Bible scholars or the Magi, who, uh, which one of these groups is most likely to be in God's favor? I really don't see any other way that the average Jewish person would say, Herod, I mean, at least he's building us a temple and he, you know, he's got the Bible scholars and they're teaching Torah and these other guys are clearly not in line with Israel or scripture or our God. But this story would have shaken those assumptions 
for a first century reader. In an irony of ironies, Jesus, who is, you know, Matthew has tipped his hat already to the reader, is God incarnate. Jesus, God incarnate, has to leave his own country, his own people, and to seek safety in Egypt. The infant Jesus has his life threatened by the king of the Jews and can only find refuge in the land that he once rescued Israel from. In this story, Herod and the Bible scholars find out that there's a possibility that the Messiah is born in their land. And instead of going to see for themselves, instead of going to offer allegiance, they remain at home and they plot to kill this Messiah. On the other hand, the Jewish-born Messiah is sought after by the pagan magi from Babylon. These learned men from the east had studied the stars and the writings of other nations, including the writings of Israel's own prophets. And they came to believe that the convergence of the star or the planet Saturn and Jupiter was a sign that the king of the Jews was about to be born. Now, why would pagan magi care if a king was born in a little nation like Israel? a nation that was under the thumb of Rome and had no political importance on the world scene. Well, they probably had the Isaiah scroll. After all, we know that the prophet Daniel, when he was in Babylon, had the Isaiah scroll. And we also know that Daniel interpreted dreams by the power of God and saved a group of what? Babylonian magi from being executed by the king. The Magi, if they had Isaiah 60, they would have been aware that the light of God's salvation was to shine on more than just Israel. It would be a light that would draw worshipers to the living God from all over the known world. What may have appeared as a myth or a legend to the Magi who knew lots of myths and legends and lots of stories of lots of prophets of many religious Um, backgrounds, what might have just appeared as maybe a myth or a story, when those planets were aligned, they said, what if this is real? It'd be worth checking out. And suddenly, when they saw the sky, they were driven, they were compelled to go investigate. These outsiders, outsiders of the Jewish faith, Um, They journeyed for weeks over dangerous terrain, venturing into a part of the world where they would expect racist, prejudice, and possible danger to their lives. But they did it because of the hope that they might find the one promised in Scripture who would bring salvation to the world. So who did Jesus come to save? What does the story mean? tell us about salvation? I think it tells us at least two things, but I'm a pastor with a limited time, so I'm just going to focus on two. I think it tells us at least two things, and the first one is that God's salvation casts a bigger net than most of us are willing to accept. Throughout history, every generation of human beings has shown that we are a tribal species, We find safety by finding our people and by villainizing other people who don't fit into our group. 
We do it in politics. We do it in religion. We do it in sports, amen? We do it in family feuds. And we do it in ethnic differences. And you know lots of other realms where this happens. And in order to make this tribal, us and them, work, we have to do some mental rationalization. We have to enforce stereotypes and ideas about others that make them seem worse than they probably really are. And we have to give ourselves free passes and exemptions when it comes to accountability in our own tribe. That's what often happens. That's why you have abuse cover-ups, And that's why we're so quick to point fingers at people outside of our group. Herod was a maniacal king. He had some of his own children executed because he was paranoid that they might want to usurp him while he was still alive. But at least, tribally speaking, at least he was part of Israel. Meanwhile, the Magi were honest and earnest, and they sacrificed a great amount just, to, just on the hunch that there might be a fulfillment to a prophecy from another culture's religious prophet. And scripture is full of examples of people from, the, from outside the usual tribe finding salvation in Jesus. The magi appear to have faith. The only people more hated than pagans from Babylon might be Romans, and yet both of the Gospels and Acts, in those books we see Roman soldiers come to faith in Jesus that many of the rabbis and the priests from from Israel never do. In Mark's Gospel, it's a Roman soldier who is helping crucify Jesus, who then is the first to say, surely this was the Son of God. We have a story of Jesus bringing salvation to a Samaritan woman who had a problem with infidelity. An outsider of outsiders according to popular Jewish standards, and yet, she's one of the first evangelists to Samaria. We see sexual minorities like the Ethiopian eunuch come to faith and salvation through Jesus. And we see repentant Paul and Zacchaeus and Matthew come to salvation even after great sins against Israel. Who did Jesus come to save? He came for all of us, and the net of his reach is much wider than many of us are willing to accept. But with that comes incredibly good news. That means that that no one in our lives is outside the reach of that net of salvation, and neither are you. All of you who are here who have disqualified yourself in your own minds and in your own hearts, it sort of doesn't matter because Jesus' net is bigger than your disqualifications. Receive that. That is incredibly good news. The second thing that this teaches us about salvation is that God's salvation is more specific than most of us are comfortable with. It's more specific than most of us are comfortable with. Some are shocked by the wide net of Jesus, but others are shocked and offended at the narrowness of salvation. It is for everyone. That's, a, that's about as wide a net as you can get. Everyone is everyone, right? No one left out. But it is through Jesus 
and Jesus alone that people are saved. It's not through good intentions, or being born into the right family, or growing up with the right religion. It is Jesus who is named Yahweh saves. Jesus casts a wider net than most of us are comfortable with, but he is not a universalist. The Roman soldiers and the Magi and Paul, the Pharisee, and the woman at the well, they came to put their trust in Jesus. They turned from placing their trust in other gods or in themselves or in their money or in their anger or in their best ideas or in whatever else their main trust was in. They turned from that and they put their trust in Jesus. Christmas is about Jesus. Advent is about us longing for the reign of Jesus. And the big surprise for readers of the gospel is that Herod and the Bible teachers are not simply saved by association. They're not simply saved by being Bible readers or being Israelites. And we have good evidence, though, that some of the household of Herod, some of his servants, they came to be followers of Jesus. We see that in the book of Acts. But it wasn't just automatic. There's a faith change. There's a repentance. There's a a following. So whether a Bible teacher or a pagan astrologer, the way to salvation is through trust in Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you're saying to yourself, I need to be challenged You have been around the church. Um, You've heard the stories. You sing the songs. The Jesus we celebrate at Christmas, the one that we sing about and we light all these candles for, um, he calls us to change and to trust him and to follow him. That's literally what being a Jesus person or a Christian, whatever, disciple, that's literally what that means is to trust and to follow to become like him. We start with baptism as a public declaration of, what, uh, of that commitment to follow, and then we live it out through worship and fellowship and service to others and doing work on, at refugees' houses. You know what I mean? Like, we live it out. And that is our commitment to knowing the Jesus who saves. So maybe some of you are, are here today, been going through the motions, and you say, I wanna, I wanna take this to the next level. Maybe some of you are out there and you're like, I haven't been baptized yet. I, um, I've been going through the motions. I, I, I've been here, I, I believe it all, but like, I wanna take that step. Talk to me. We'll fill up, the, there's a tank under there. I'll fill that thing up. Not right now, but like next week, whenever. <laughs> we'll talk, we'll talk. Maybe you're here today on the other end of the spectrum, and you need to be reminded that the salvation of Jesus at that wide net includes you. Your past, your present, your crisis of faith right now, none of that disqualifies you from the love of Jesus. If you can find a speck of trust in Jesus, you can express that now and know the freedom and comfort of the God who saves. In fact, I'm going to transition to the communion table because this is, I can't really think of a, of a better next step, what we're about to do right here. <laughs>